Well, good evening, everyone. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. You may already have them still open there. Um, we are doing a study through the book of Acts this summer, and so I thought that I would just share with you tonight what I shared with my congregation last Lord's Day. Uh, I do want to send you greetings from Emmanuel Baptist Church. We're actually right now, as I'm speaking, meeting a couple of blocks away here in Roseville. One of our members has several acres in his house, and uh, so he's invited us to congregate there as a congregation. This morning was our first try. A lot hotter without the breeze, so uh, tonight certainly feels a little bit better. Pardon me? Oh, thank you. Yeah, so uh, I'll be patient with you, be patient with me. This is sort of my first experience speaking uh, outside for quite a long time. Uh, but anyway, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, before we begin, let me just uh, say a brief word of prayer. Lord, I ask that you would help me to be a blessing and encouragement to your people here uh, in Veritas. I pray that you would uh, nourish us on your word, which enlightens our understanding. It helps us to view the world through your eyes to understand how you want us to think and live, and to provide us with directions regarding our mission uh, during our earthly sojourn. We pray, Father, that we'd be faithful to our community, especially at this time of need. And I ask your blessing now on our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Can anything good come out of a worldwide pandemic or a nationwide protests? I'm sure some of you have been asking that question the last couple of months, and maybe if you're like me, you've got a whole list of negative things that have come out of uh, these circumstances, but certainly you can think of some benefits. And one of the benefits that I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks is the fact that both the pandemic and also the protests have served to highlight uh, the marginalized in our society. Somebody says, what is, what is a marginalized? Well, the marginalized are those who are undervalued, those who are pushed to the margins, to the fringes, to the outskirts, people who are ignored or neglected or in some cases despised and rejected. The pandemic has focused our attention upon the elderly and the infirm, whereas the protests have focused our attention upon the minorities, particularly uh, our African-American citizens. And although you and I can debate issues like the severity of COVID-19 and what are the best ways to mitigate it, Certainly, we should all share a concern for those who are vulnerable. We might also discuss uh, just how extensive racism remains in our country and what are the best policies to deal with it. Nevertheless, we can certainly oppose racism itself, and we can be in favor of life and liberty for all. Well, in Acts chapter 8, God is using persecution to prompt his church to think about the marginalized in their day. He doesn't use a pandemic. He doesn't use 
protests, but rather he uses a per persecution to drive his people into the outskirts of their society to think about those who were undervalued in their day. And the question that I want us to ask and I want to attempt to answer tonight is what does the church's mission to the marginalized look like according to Acts chapter 8? And if I were to summarize my answer to that question, I would say it this way. Our mission to the marginalized looks like this. Ordinary believers reaching out to those who are undervalued in our society, proactively sharing the good news about Jesus and calling sinners to believe that message so that they might experience the lasting joy of a right relationship with God. So in a nutshell, that's what I believe Acts 8 is largely about. We don't have time to focus on all the details, obviously a large chapter, and I don't want to keep us out here until midnight, but I do want to focus on some of the highlights of this chapter and our mission as a church to the marginalized. And so come with me, first of all, as we focus in on what I would call the target audience. Who are the individuals that Christ is seeking to reach through his church? And in this chapter, you probably noted there are two groups of individuals highlighted. First, the Samaritans, and then secondly, this individual called an Ethiopian eunuch. So let's look at each of those in turn. Who are these Samaritans. Well, obviously, they're people who live in that northern region of Palestine called Samaria. But for our purposes tonight, it's important to remember that the Samaritans were generally despised by the Jews. Do you remember when Jesus was going through Samaria and he stops at a well and he asks a Samaritan woman for a drink and she actually looks at him somewhat puzzled, and she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask of me to drink, and I'm a Samaritan and a woman? And John, the gospel writer, adds this explanatory note. He says this, he says, now the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And that prompts the question, why? Why is it that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans? Well, Again, if you know your Bible history, you'll remember that in 722 B.C., um, eight centuries before Christ, the Assyrians had come into northern Israel, and they not only conquered the nation, but they displaced the most important people of Israel and moved them off into captivity. They left some of the less important people of Israel there, and they also imported other conquered nations into the north. And so those peoples brought their own customs, their own religion. They intermarried with the remaining Israelites. And so you had a mixed uh, race and sort of mixed religion as well. By the time of Jesus and the apostles, the Samaritans had retained their belief in the books of Moses. They would have identified themselves as Moses' disciples. They would have affirmed the Pentateuch. They even would have entertained something of a messianic hope. They were looking forward to some great prophet who would be like Moses. However, the Samaritans worked, uh, worshipped at Gerizim, whereas the Jews worshipped at Jerusalem. In fact, if a Samaritan had wanted to go Jer to Jerusalem to worship God, he would not have been permitted. The Jews despised them that much. 
And so, if you want to find an example of a marginalized person in the Bible, in fact, if you wanted to find an example of sort of proto-racism in the Bible, the Jewish attitudes towards the Samaritans would have typified that attitude. They viewed them as half-breeds. Reminds me of when I was a young uh, lad going to an elementary school here in California and the teacher was organizing a skit and asked me if I would volunteer to carry the Mexican flag. We didn't have any Mexicans in the class, but my last name is Gonzalez, and so that seemed close enough. Uh, so I volunteered. I said, sure, I'll do that. And when I told my, my Spanish abuela that I had volunteered to carry the Mexican flag, I was surprised by her disfavor. She took me outside, she scolded me, and she says, you never want to do that again because you're Spanish. Spaniards are not Mexicans. Mexicans are half-breeds. And of course, the implication in her mind was that Mexicans are inferior to Spaniards. Well, that's, that's something of an illustration of the attitude that the Jews had towards the Samaritans. What's important for us folks tonight is to realize that Jesus doesn't want that attitude to infect his church. And so he sends persecution to push his church into the outskirts of society, into the region of Samaria, in order to reach those people so that Christ can convert them and bring them into the church. He wants his church to be inclusive. So that's one group, the Samaritans. But now let's consider this other group, or this other individual, this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, who are the Ethiopians? Well, they were from the, from the people of Cush. They occupied the northern part of Africa, where today we find mo modern Ethiopia and also part of Sudan. All right? Um, if the Samaritans were half-Gentiles, the Ethiopian was full-blooded Gentile. Moreover, in our passage, the individuals identified not simply as a Gentile, but as a eunuch. Eunuchs in ancient societies were males who were castrated, and they usually served in royal households or in positions of government. Because they were castrated, they didn't have much sexual desire. They could be trusted with the king's harem. And also because they didn't have a wife or children, there weren't those competing family loyalties. So they were usually very well-trusted individuals. So this particular... Uh, eunuch is referred to as serving uh, Kandaki, the queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, that's how it's pronounced, by the way, Kandaki. In the Ethiopian society, uh, the king was so important, he was considered so nearly divine that he was too regal to be involved with mundane affairs. And so consequently, the queen took care of business. And so that's, that's why they're referring here to the queen of the Ethiopians. But this individual was a government official, this eunuch. And again, what's important for us to note tonight is the fact that he's described as one going up to Jerusalem to worship. And in fact, on his way back, he's reading the prophet Isaiah. All right, so this man is a proselyte. He's a convert to the Jewish religion. How did he become that? Well, because of the dispersion what's called the diaspora. After the exile, many of the Jews were scattered into the other nations. And uh, so there were Jews that settled in Ethiopia, and there in Ethiopia they would have set up synagogues, little, little gathering places, sort of like proto-churches, as it were. 
It's very likely this, this Ethiopian eunuch came into contact with these Jews. He probably visited their synagogue. He heard passages of Scripture read, maybe passages from the book of Isaiah. I mean, after all, he was able to purchase that scroll. He was interested in that scroll. Maybe he had read passages like Isaiah 11 that talks about God gathering his remnant out of the nations and identifies Ethiopia as one of those nations. Or perhaps even he heard that wonderful passage in Isaiah chapter 56. It's a promise to eunuchs. Listen to this. God says, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Wow. Maybe it was that text that prompted them to make that long sojourn uh, that would have taken weeks or months to go from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem in order to worship Yahweh in Yahweh's house. But unfortunately, when he came to Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem, he would have been sorely disappointed because he would not have been permitted to enter into the temple. He was a Gentile and he was a eunuch. Now, there was a court outside the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. He could be in that court, but he could not enter the temple. In fact, there was a huge wall that separated the Court of the Gentiles and the temple precincts themselves. You say, why did the Jews do that? Well, it was based somewhat upon the Old Testament legislation that taught that Gentiles, and especially eunuchs, were not permitted to serve in the priesthood. In fact, in one passage, it says they're not allowed to enter into the assembly. So there's some kind of formal privilege Gentiles and eunuchs were not allowed to fulfill. Now, if you understand Old Testament typology, you'll remember that the priests and even the nations in certain functions were to serve as a type and a shadow of Christ. And so consequently, there were certain standards that they had to meet in order to serve as that type, that shadow. But God never intended that law in any sense to keep Gentiles from coming to him in salvation, nor for being proselytes of the Jewish nation, the Jewish community. In other words, they could be brought into the covenant even in the old covenant, all right, even though there were certain privileges that they could not exercise. The problem, though, is that many of the Jews misinterpreted Moses' legislation. They understood it to mean something like this. Well, since God really gives us special privileges, we must be better. That somehow these Gentiles, and especially those eunuchs, they're inferior folk. What's even worse, the Jews during this time in Acts chapter 8, remember, they had rejected Jesus. So they had completely missed the fact that the Messiah had com come to fulfill all of those Old Testament shadows and that middle wall of partition was being taken down. But needless to say, he was greatly disappointed because he was treated as a kind of a half-rate covenant member. I wonder if his experience was somewhat analogous to the experience our African-American brothers and sisters had after the Civil War. They were allowed, even after the Emancipation Proclamation, they were allowed to be members 
of Christian churches. They were allowed to come in and listen to sermons, but they could not integrate. They could not sit together in the congregation. They had to either sit outside or they had to sit in a section that was basically marked off for people of color. They were made to feel like half-rate members in the Church of Christ. I, You know, you read about that and you wonder how is it that the church in America really got that so wrong. But they did get it wrong, brothers and sisters. And uh, what Acts 8 is really making clear, though, to us, as it did to the early church, is that that wall of separation has been taken down. All right? there, Jesus doesn't want there to be those half-rate members in his church. And so you and I have to make sure that we're very careful in our churches not to put up any partitions, any walls of separation. We need to make it clear that Jesus is welcoming anyone and everyone who repents of their sin, believes in Jesus, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their social standing. He's bringing them in to the body of Christ. Well, that's the kind of people that Jesus is calling us to reach, to think about during this pandemic, during these protests. But now let's look at the Christian missionaries. And in our text in Acts 8, you'll probably note that he focuses mainly upon one, a guy named Philip. However, Luke makes it very clear at the outset that Philip is just one of many. All right, if you notice there in the first couple of verses, uh, we're told that those who were scattered about, that is, scattered by the persecution, and in the earlier verses Paul said that includes men and women, all right, that they went about preaching the word. In fact, the only ones excluded were the apostles. The apostles didn't scatter, but the regular lay people did scatter. And so the first thing that I want to highlight is that the missionary agents of the early church were not what we might think. They weren't, you know, ordained missionaries. They weren't apostles. They weren't even the elders of the church, but they were lay people like you and me. In fact, one church historian puts it this way. He says, the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession or a major part of their occupation, but men and women who earned their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those who whom they met in this natural fashion. And so, as you guys think, as Veritas thinks about uh, her mission to the marginalized of Roseville or greater Sacramento, don't just think of it as a mission for your pastors, your church leaders. Think of it as a mission for the whole church, all right? But now let's look more closely at Philip, all right? Let's think about this individual that... Uh, Luke focuses our attention upon. There's four things about him I just simply highlight. Number one, he was a, a man of godly character, all right? He's described back in chapter 6 as, you remember, a man of good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace. Secondly, he was a man with a servant's attitude and resume. He was, he was called out to serve tables. We might say that he learned how to wash feet and serve tables before he even preached, Thirdly, he was a man who knew the Scripture. We know this because he was able to actually preach Christ to the Ethiopian from Isaiah 53. All right? How many of you ever tried that? Open up Isaiah 53 
and do a Bible study on Christ. He was able to do that, so he knew the Bible. And then fourthly, and this is the point I really want to underscore for you, he was a man with a burden for the lost. In fact, really, that characterizes not just Philip, but the others who were scattered about. Think of this, folks. They were chased out of Jerusalem, persecuted, being threatened to be imprisoned by Saul. They lost their jobs. They probably lost their property, which was confiscated. They barely made it out. And what are they concerned about? Are they trying to find a place up in Montana to be safe, to be secure, to survive? Well, that's not their primary concern. But as they go about, they're actually primarily concerned with sharing the gospel, with remarkably doing the very same thing that got them booted out of Jerusalem. And so he obviously had a burden for the lost. And I think by way of illustration or way of application to us tonight, I would just simply say, folks, it's not wrong for us to be concerned right now during COVID-19 about our own health, our preservation, our safety. All right? It's not even wrong for us as we're debating as a nation with the protests and the riots and the civil unrest. It's not wrong for us to be, you know, trying to analyze um, the, the elements of these, these arguments for new social policies and to debate that and to try to discern, well, what's, what's wrong and what's right. It's not wrong to be concerned about that, but that should not be our primary concern, all right? Uh, we don't want to be spending most of our time arguing for our Second Amendment right when we should be thinking more about the Second Commandment, all right? Loving our neighbor enough to share with them the gospel. And certainly, that's what we see marked by these Christian missionaries, these early Christian missionaries. They had a burden for those in need. But now let's consider, thirdly, very briefly, the evangelistic methods that they employed. And there's some things here, obviously, that are unique to the early church, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the apostles. Those things are sort of foundational of the church. But I want to focus just on three methodologies that are still normative for us today. Number one, spoken evangelism, not just lifestyle evangelism. All right, if you look at the verbs in our text, uh, verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, uh, they're, they're modes of communication, they're preaching, they're proclaiming. I mean, verse 35, uh, in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, there's no doubt it says Philip does what? He opens his mouth, okay? And he tells the good news. I'd simply highlight the fact, folks, that we're not going to win people to Christ simply by living decent lives, okay? We can't appeal to 1 Peter 3, where Peter tells the Christian wives to win their husbands without a word. Uh, we need to remember that they had already been talking the gospel, all right, Peter's just saying, okay, you probably said enough. Now it's time to just back it up with a godly life. But my point is that some of, us, some of us are timid. Some of us are shy. Some of us are introverts. We might be tempted to think, well, if I just let my light shine by being a good example, that's good enough. It's not good enough. All right? We need to be praying, asking God for the courage to be able to share, to speak the gospel, spoken evangelism. Secondly, notice that it's proactive evangelism, all right? They're not waiting around for the Samaritans to gather at their feet, okay? They're going out. They're reaching out. We might say maybe initially they were a little passive. Perhaps that's why Jesus sort of sends persecution to push them, get out of Jerusalem, reach these Samaritans. Maybe they were slow in doing that initially, okay? But once he pushes them out, 
They're sharing the gospel. All right? And then, uh, when God wants to reach that Ethiopian eunuch, he sends an angel who directs Philip to go down to Gaza. And what's amazing is that he doesn't delay. He goes down immediately, and then the Spirit says, join yourself to that chariot, and he does it. It says he runs. All right? So he's pursuing the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, do I have to say that we need to be doing the same? There was a day when over 75% of Americans in our country attended church on Sunday. All right? Colonial America. Now, that doesn't happen anymore, does it? All right? But back then, your pastor could do a lot of the evangelism because most of the people from the community came to church. All right? But we can't do that today, folks. We can't do that today. There's a reason why the Great Commission begins with the verb go. All right, they're not going to just come. We got to go. We got to share it. That's why largely it does need to be uh, the uh, participation, the involvement of lay people doing it. The pastors can't do all that. All right, so it's, it's spoken, it's proactive, and then thirdly and finally, it's public and it's private. All right, Samaria, mainly public. Uh, the verb that he uses to talk about the preaching is a verb of communication, mainly talking about public address. Also, uh, Luke says that crowds were listening to Philip, so that's obviously some kind of public venue, maybe the marketplace. But what's important for our purposes is to notice that it's not just public evangelism that catches the, uh, the, the Scripture writer's eye. It's also private evangelism. So God sees fit to include in this inspired account the example of an individual, an Ethiopian eunuch who perhaps was praying as he's reading through the skull of Isaiah, Lord, please show me, give me understanding. And God is so concerned for that one individual that he sends Philip to go down in order to clarify what Isaiah 53 is talking about. You may wonder sometimes, well, you know, I'm not called to be a public speaker, so I guess I can't participate in this mission. Well, you don't have to do public evangelism. That's important to God. Yes, there's a place for that, but God has called many of us to do private evangelism, one-on-one -on -one Bible studies, sharing with workmates, with friends and family members. We ought to be praying for that and asking God for opportunities. And obviously, folks, if we're going to do that, we need to be someone who, like Philip, is cultivating godly character, who's developing a servant's attitude, who is growing in our knowledge of Scripture and praying for and cultivating that love and that burden for the lost. Well, those are some aspects of evangelistic method highlighted in our passage. But now, fourthly, and more quickly, the gospel message. All right, what is it, what is it that we're supposed to be sharing with people? And again, I'm moving along really quickly here. I hope I'm not taking up too much of your time here, but three things. Number one, the message Philip and the others were sharing focuses upon Jesus Christ. All right, did you see that? All right, it says there that the people in verse 5, or, or rather Philip in verse 5 is proclaiming to the Samaritans the Messiah. All right, and then later on in verse 35, um, he, told, he tells the eunuch the good news about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 53. I could say more, but I think... I don't have to convince you of that. You know that our message needs to be Christ-centered. Dear friends, our neighbors, our workmates, what they really need is not some definitive word on COVID-19 and face masks. I'm not saying that wouldn't be helpful, but 
I don't know. I've been reading lots and lots of articles, and, and it gets confusing, all right? But even if we could find it, even if we could locate that one article that just settled it all, that's not what people need most, nor do they need most some cogent argument against neo-Marxism on the one hand or some eloquent essay for against racism on the other. Those are important. Don't get me wrong. But what all of these people need most, more than anything else, is to hear about Jesus. All right? So we need to be thinking about bringing him into the discussion. Secondly, the message Philip and the others preached was, listen to this, shaped by the Bible's Storyline. Somebody says, how do you get that? Well, it says there in verse 12 that Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Now that phrase, kingdom of God, is a theme, a major theme in the Bible's storyline. If somebody was to ask you, how do you summarize the Bible's storyline? Well, you should be able to do it in four parts, okay? Four movements. First of all, you've got creation, which is God's kingdom established. Then you've got the fall, which is uh, human beings made in the image of God who rebel against the king. Then you have redemption. That takes up most of Bible history, and that talks about God restoring his kingdom through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, you have consummation, or what we normally think of as heaven, and that's when God completely restores his kingdom. Now, when Philip preached Christ. Here's my point. He would have placed Jesus' death and resurrection somewhere on that storyline, all right? His message would have been very similar to what Jesus preached when he came and said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, God sent Jesus into the world to reverse his curse, to create a new humanity that will live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's got to be part of our message. All right, so when you and I uh, speak with people about, uh, about the gospel, it's not enough just to give the facts of the Bible. It's not enough just to say, well, this is the, the story of the Bible. It's not even enough to tell people that, well, God exists, or uh, here's some biblical principles for godly living, or, or here's the way to get a good conscience. No, we have to preach to them the message about the story of the gospel, where God sends Jesus to reestablish his kingdom and to set up on earth a place where only righteousness dwells. All right, putting the gospel in the Bible storyline. And then thirdly and lastly, the message should be inclusive of gospel imperatives. What do I mean? Well, when the eunuch said to Philip, hey, stop, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? What does that presuppose? All right. Did he get baptism out of Isaiah 53? No. Okay. Nothing about baptism in Isaiah 53. It presupposes that Luke's not telling us everything that Philip said. And so part of what Philip said is that here's the gospel, here's what Jesus did, here's the, the great storyline of the restoration of God's kingdom, but now you must respond to that message. You need to repent of your sins, you need to put your trust in Jesus, you need to be baptized for the remission of sins. All right. In other words, what's included in the gospel message, folks, is a call to respond. And so it's not enough 
again, for us to share with our, our friends or relatives or family members that, well, here's the facts of the Bible, and, and that's it. We got to call them to respond. That doesn't mean we'll have that opportunity in every single instance. There may even be circumstances where we say, well, I better put it off for right now. He's not ready for me to tell him to repent. That's okay, but our mission isn't done until we call them to respond. All right, that's what Philip and the early Christians were doing. But now, finally, the positive outcomes, just two that I'll highlight, all right? Number one, what was the result of this mission? Number one, happy conversions, happy conversions. The narrative tells us that Philip's message literally captivated multitudes. Verse 6, we read that the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. Oh, how pastors love it when they look out in their congregation, everybody's doing what these crowds were doing, paying attention, okay? They were gripped by what Philip was saying. Later in verse 12, we're told that many men and women were baptized, which assumes, of course, that there were dozens and dozens of professions of faith. Now, not every profession of faith was necessarily genuine. We know that from the example of Simon in our passage. And I don't have time to get into Simon the magician, but let me just say, he didn't pull rabbits out of his hat, okay? He wasn't that kind of magician. He was a religious teacher who was probably dabbling in the occult. And he used religion as a way to make money, all right? And he wasn't interested in forgiveness and having a personal relationship with God. He just saw those miracles, and he thought, I want that, all right? He even offered to pay for it. And so the apostles exposed that he was a false professor, all right? However, I think Luke is presenting Simon as a kind of an exception to the rule. All right, a very prominent exception to be sure, but he was an exception. By and large, most of the people who believed, most of the people who were baptized in Samaria were actually converted. I say that because if you look there at the end of verse 8, it says there that most of these people went on rejoicing. That is, there was much joy in that city. Okay, And we see the same response highlighted by the Ethiopian. Look down in verse 39. Uh, after putting his trust in Jesus, after being baptized in water, verse 39, it says, he went on his way rejoicing. All right? Happy conversions. Friends, right now, because of the pandemic, because of the civil unrest, the protests, most people are feeling either fear or they're feeling anger. Okay? And what they need right now is a joy that's going to far exceed any happiness they might get from a vaccine or some political reform. What they need right now is to experience the heart-changing power of the gospel that will give them a joy that no pandemic, no civil unrest, no persecution could ever take from them. All right? So that's the first thing, happy conversions. And then secondly and finally, church growth. All right, church growth. Don't you want church growth? We want Veritas Church to grow. Well, here in Acts 8, we see church growth highlighted. And Luke kind of does it here a little differently. In other passages, he says, so the Lord added to their number. Okay, He didn't do that here, did he? You might say, well, where are you getting church growth from here? Well, he does it indirectly, in fact. 
um, when he recounts how the apostles in Jerusalem came down to Samaria to check out what was going on. No doubt they heard the news, revival breaking out in Samaria. So they send down Peter and uh, I think it's John, and they come down to check out what's going on. And lo and behold, they find out that most of this is the real thing. They do, you know, kind of spot Simon and expose him as a fake, but most of it's real. So much so that the apostles lay hands upon these Samaritans, and God pours out the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly what happened. It must have been, you know, amazing because even Simon was wowed by what happened. Probably something like Pentecost, something miraculous happened. But the purpose for that was not just to show that, you know, here's some neat miracles. The purpose was that something similar to Pentecost would happen there in Samaria, namely that the Spirit would fall upon these Samaritans not only to assure them that Jesus had accepted them, but now listen to this, to tell the church back in Jerusalem, you better accept these Samaritans, all right? Because Jesus is marking them off as part of his church. And so, again, brothers and sisters, that ought to be something that you and I desire. We want to reach the marginalized in our community why? So that they'll be happy, so that they'll come to Christ, but also so that we might see the church of Christ built up, all right? Not just built up with people like us, but built up with people from all walks of life, all social standings, all ethnic backgrounds. Is that what you want? All right? I know that's what I want. Uh, maybe my flesh doesn't always want it all the time, but I, li- I desire that, brethren. I, I pray that God would make me uh, a missionary to the marginalized in our society. People ask me, what do you think about Black Lives Matter? All right. And I even thought, you know, should I bring this up here? Um, but actually, you know, I've tried to think about that. I try to have a careful response to that. Um, and so it's kind of a fourfold response. I'll just share it with you. Uh, maybe this will It'd be helpful for you to think about our present situation. Number one, I believe that black lives matter because all humans are created in the, as the image of God, and this is what gives humans dignity, all right? That's my first response. Number two, I oppose forms of unjust discrimination that are based on race and ethnicity, and I'm in favor of liberty and justice for all, all right? And then number three, here's the third part of my answer. Inasmuch as the organization called Black Lives Matter supports dignity and justice for all humans, I can agree with BLM. Um, Unfortunately, some of their core values, the core values of that organization, are contrary to my Christian belief. So I can't support certain things about that organization. But then fourthly, all right, again, they're asking me, what do you think about BLM? Here's my answer. Fourthly, it's not radical enough, okay? It is just, I just, I'm not crazy about it because it's not radical enough. In fact, any political reform, any human rights organization today is probably not going to be radical enough. You say, in what way? Well, because they don't address the root problem. The root problem of racism, social injustice, is sin. All right? Because of sin, we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. Because of sin, we don't love God. And you see, because that's the root problem, then only Scripture, only the Gospel, only Christ can offer a solution to that. BLM can't offer that solution. Democrats, the Republicans, they can't offer that solution. But you and I, 
You and I, listen to this, we can offer the solution. And that solution is found in the Bible. It's found, lo and behold, in Isaiah 53. All right, listen to this. I'm just going to read the first few verses. We're going to close in a minute, but listen to this. You realize, folks, that Jesus Christ was marginalized to save the marginalized. That is remarkable. He's the creator of the world. All right, he's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. If anyone should not be pushed to the out, outer edges, it should be Jesus, right? He should be centered. But instead, listen to what the prophet says is going to happen to Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Philip would have said to the eunuch. That's what you and I can say to our fellow Americans today. That's what we can post, by the way, on our Facebook wall. That's what we can put in our Twitter feed. It's all about Jesus. He's the one who can give the marginalized hope because he was marginalized on our behalf. And I just want to say tonight, if there's anybody here and you consider yourself one of the undervalued in society for whatever reason, uh, let me say that, that God does not undervalue you. Um, he doesn't because he sent his only son, his beloved son, to die in order that you might uh, find your meaning and purpose in Christ, in order that your sins might be forgiven and that you might have a new reason to live and the hope of life after death. And so if you're here tonight, you feel undervalued, you feel marginalized, I'm sure there's one of the brothers or sisters here, one of the leaders of the church that would be happy. I'd be happy to stay after and talk with you. But brothers and sisters, may God use this word, I hope, to encourage all of us to try to use this opportunity, this unique time, 2020, to be a time where we're focused on being on mission reaching those in need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that it would energize us, that it would motivate us, that it would help us and form us, Lord, such that we would be an arrow in your hand, that you would shoot us forth, and that we would proclaim the gospel to those around us. Help us, Lord. We have friends, we have family members that come to mind even as we're praying right now that we need to reach out to, that we need to muster up the boldness and courage to speak to. Help us not to get sidetracked by other important issues, but in issues that are not quite as important as the gospel and as men's eternal souls are important. So we pray, Father, put us on mission, we pray, for your glory and for the happiness of others. In Jesus' name, amen.